Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. So good to have you here with us. Let's push up the volume here. I'm working with my new soundboard. Got this new Rode Podcaster Pro. Love this thing. So hopefully it's coming through to you all loud and clear. Good to have you with us again. It is September 7th. It is Labor Day. So good to have you dialing in, listening. Uh, we got several people dialing in. Amazing. And listening in on a streaming basis. So grateful. Most of you will listen to this on a downloaded basis, which is a great way to do it. You can go to Lickin' On Lending, the website, or go listen to it on Blog Talk Radio on a downloaded basis. But today, podcast, there's a couple of interesting surprises I have for you. I have a special guest that will be joining me. His name is CJ DeSantis. I'll tell you more about it when I introduce him to you. And he sent me an article, Reversing Financialization in a Post-COVID-19 World. Really interesting article. It's published by the Advisor's Perspective. He had sent it over to me, and I then read it. I go, wow, this is really good. And then I sent it around to a bunch of my friends, had them read it, and they go, oh, this is a wow, kind of one of those wow articles. And I like it because it was written on August 24, 2020 is when the article was written and published. And advisor's perspective. So I've invited C.J. DeSantis in, who sent this article to me to join me a little bit into the podcast to discuss it. And I can't wait to share it with you. By the way, you'll find a link to this article in our show notes, both on the Blog Talk Radio website, as well on our write-up in our website. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. We're grateful to have you as our listener. Our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. Someone just texted me, says, I thought you were going to run through some your past look backs on some of your podcasts. I'm going to weave that in here. Definitely will be doing that. I think there are some special things I want to call your attention to. And then also in the hot topic segment, we're going to be playing the recent Ainsworth Advisors, a monthly call. It's very interesting. It's an interview again, Ainsworth Advisors, one of our sponsors. It's one of the companies I own. What we do is we bring the board of advisors together once a month and we have them share their thoughts on what's going on in the market. So in the hot topic segment, you're going to listen to our newest member of the Ainsworth Advisors is Gwen Muse Evans, one of my favorite new people. I just love Gwen. We met several years ago in the Washington, D.C. area. We actually met in Florida speaking out. She was a panelist on one of the panels I was moderating for the MBA, and it was really interesting. And she walked up to me afterwards. She says, you are going to become my new best friend. And we have been best friends ever since. So I'm really looking forward to having you listen to her comments. And then Joe Murin makes some really interesting comments about what's going on with Jenny May. Why and, and a perspective of what is happening with the FHFA increase of 50 bips on the pricing for refinances and what's behind that. And he brings out industry's perspective. So you're going to want to stay tuned to the Hot Topic segment and listen to all the commentary. We've talked about a lot of issues, but that one was first and foremost. We'll be recording another one here, I believe this week or next week will be for September and we'll go through that. Anyway, I want to say we're so pleased to be a part of the Industry Syndicate. You can check out all the podcasts that are on the Industry Syndicate. Check 
it out at industrysyndicate.com. Also, we're thrilled to be part of the mortgagemedia.com. Check out what is going on over there. Dave Matthews and I have a Dave and Dave. Maybe it should be Dave versus Dave, but it's Dave and Dave. We're good friends, but we see the world sometimes so differently, at least politically. So it's really gets some interesting content that comes out there. So anyway, uh, special attention to both of those syndications of our podcast. So also I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. I always say check out the Mortgage Action Alliance application on your cell phone to have your voice heard in Washington, D.C. And it's never been more important to do that. Also, the NASTRA, the mortgage bot solution automatically addresses compliance issues as well delivering enhanced borrower satisfaction and increased productivity as well as, uh, by the way, we had them as a guest last week. We listen to that podcast. That's getting a lot of downloads and listens. Also, we're part of two co-ops, Lenders One, as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. Both of these co-ops create competitive advantages for lender and vendor members. Also, we're members of the Community Mortgage Lenders of America. We're going to have, really excited to have an upcoming guest. Michael will be coming back on. He is the current president of CMLA, and we'll have him coming up on a podcast here in just a few weeks. Also, Indicom, we had them on recently as a guest. I think that was, that was actually last week. It was Finastro was the week before. And we had Linda Bomar uh, on there and talking with another one of the execs talking about artificial intelligence, RPA, real interesting conversation. Be sure to check out that podcast as well as Josh from Incelerate. Great to have him as a partner. Check out how you can engage borrowers more effectively with this really unique tool, Incelerate. And they just launched their new mobile app. I have my clients looking at it. Also, Ainsworth Advisors, sponsor of the podcast. So also going to be in the Hot Topic segment, as well as AI Assist, which is artificial intelligence and reaching borrowers, celebrity home loans. If you're looking for a place to aggregate up your company or your efforts, your production with, go check out Celebrity Home Loans, Knowledge Scoop, Mobility RE, and Modic. But be sure to check out all of our sponsors at our Lickin' on Lending website. Hey, why aren't you going through all of them? Sometimes I go on on and on about these. I love them. And I, but I think you are dialed in to listen to what we're talking about and what we have on the topic. So I encourage you, please check out the sponsors. They're really some great stuff. Sometimes we have them on and I select our sponsors. For example, Velma does one of the best job, one of the most simple solutions to getting your messaging out. Does it email? email. They also have, which is still very effective, also mail, that mail response rates are still the highest that they've been at. So check out Velma. Also, VendorSurf is a great way to find all the vendors that are out there. Vidyard, I love Vidyard. I'm using it all the time to communicate with my clients on specific things. Great for screen sharing. All of our regulars are not here with us. They're enjoying Labor Day, but a special thank you goes out to Alice, Andy, Alan, and Matt for their contributions each week. And we're now going to get into the Hot topic segment, and I appreciate you being here. Stay right here because we're about ready to start the Hot topic segment. All right, everybody, welcome to the September 7th podcast. It's the Hot topic segment. We just had on CJ DeSantis talking about the revitalization. It's an article, Revising Financialization in a Post- COVID-19 world, an article written by John Balder. It's a great article published on August 24th. My birthday turned 70, hard to believe. And so be sure to go back and listen to that podcast today. Then the hot topic segment, I want to share with you courting that we did last month, shortly after FHFA and as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac came out, talked about the 50% bump on on interest rates for refinances. So a lot going on there. And so we recorded this, and this is a group of Ainsworth advisors and I want to share that with you on this podcast. So listen and enjoy. You can also listen to this again if you want to by going to AinsworthAdvisors.com and listen to this podcast. So here we go. Here we Good go. morning, everyone. 
Welcome to our monthly call for Ainsworth Advisors for August. On the call, we've got Joe Murren, David Licken, uh, Mark Helm will be joining us momentarily, and Les Parker. Uh, this is our first one we're doing by Zoom, and I'd also like to introduce then our newest member of our panel. That's Gwen. Would you take just a moment and kind of introduce yourself and give a little of your background, please? Sure. Good morning or good afternoon, whatever time you're hearing this. My name is Gwen Evans, and I'm thrilled to be part of this group and look forward to having lively conversations about everything that's happening in the industry. I'm a long-term financial services executive, 30-plus years. We'll leave it at that. And my most recent corporate role was with Fannie Mae, where I was the chief risk officer for two of their business areas. First, their credit portfolio management, and then overall of single family and after leaving Fannie after 14 years in 2014, so was able to be there through the excitement of the various crises that we experienced both in 2008 and then throughout, I've started my own consulting firm, uh, which is called GME Enterprises. And, and what we do is uh, we provide risk management, operations management, and uh, housing finance advisory services in the mortgage banking industry. We have a due diligence practice where we do mostly work with warehouse lenders, but we also do uh, capability assessments for uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac sellers and those interested in becoming seller servicers. And then we've done quite a bit in mergers and acquisitions, of course, as the industry has gone through a number of changes. So I think that's enough of a soundbite, but just, again, look forward to, to working with this group. If you want to get to know Gwen better, go check out my interview. I've had several interviews with Gwen on the Lickin' on Lending podcast. You'll also see her. We're going to be recording one shortly on the Lickin' on Leadership podcast. So you can get to know Gwen and more of her thoughts. Joe Murins is also up there, as is Gary Ortz. And Joe, yours is one of the most downloaded Lickin' on Leadership podcasts. More commentary about that. So maybe hopefully we'll get you a little more competition with from Gwen. Anyway, but welcome, Gwen. It's very good to have you. Yes, yeah, very much. Glad to have you part of the group. I'd like to start out with a discussion about the announcement yesterday by the GSEs. Kind of surprising, caught, I think, a lot of lenders off guard, and I think there'll be a little pushback on that as well. Gwen, you were there for a good while. A 50 basis point increase in, in the loan level adjustment for the risk uh, only on refinances and cash outs. You got any insight on that and what's going on with it? Or Joe, you as well? So I'm happy to, I'll put my former Fannie Mae and my, my risk officer hat on first. And, and honestly, one of the things that I do and that my team does is we're always looking at trends and emerging trends. And, and the increase in refinances has been concerning from a risk management perspective. And I think we're talking about like 66% now of the market is refinances. And we've, we're going into our second year of a refi boom or Spurge or whatever you want to call it, and refinances are riskier. So from a risk perspective, I, I understand the rationale of evaluating where pricing is and determining whether or not there's appropriate risk-based pricing for the refinance volume that's continued and in the near you know, foreseeable future seems to be continuing. Could you explain a little more detail why refinances are tend to be a little riskier so that those that are listening would understand that? The changes on the loan level price adjustments were focused on the limited cash out and cash out refinances. And as we um, continue to go through a really tough economic times, 
One of the challenges or concerns, you know, for cash out refinances is what are people doing with the money? Are they using their home as a piggy bank? And are they, unfortunately, and, and this is the reality, we've been fortunate to be able to regain the equity that was lost during the last crisis. But there are a lot of folks that are unemployed, underemployed, facing significant economic stress. And and one of the questions is how much of the cash out refinance is that? It's helping people to support their lifestyle or to survive. And if that's the case, as those monies are are utilized and, and they run out, then we face yet another economic challenge because then the equity is gone. So there's not an ability to to replenish the money that was gained through cash out refinances. How timely, Gwen, for you to join the Ainsworth Board of Advisors as this announcement comes out and the unique perspective that you have having run risk at Fannie Mae, I think it's very interesting. I tell you how the industry is reacting is predictable. There's shock and awe. What is you know, Calabria thinking? Is this representative of the nation? Is he gone rogue? I'm, I could tell you some of the top and many, some that serve on the board at the NBA are sitting here and their heels. This took the industry back. Yeah. And if you look at the NBA response, it would seem yeah. like even the NBA was caught flat-footed, are now on their mm-hmm. heels, are leaning forward into it. I think it's great and time, timely that you're here to give us some commentary on that. The thing I would add before I, start, before I put on my industry hat, because I definitely <laughs> understand the response from the industry and the MBA, is that the, the GSEs, because as we've seen throughout this pandemic, we've seen contracting in the market, and you've certainly seen Jumbo contracted, non-QM contracted, and, and many of the banks, they've tightened their credit requirements. And so Fannie and Freddie have become even more of the game in town. And so from that perspective as well, oh no, we're being, I don't think it's adversely selected, but definitely as I've talked to my clients that Fannie and Freddie have taken much bigger share and, and you see the investors and the correspondent lenders have dialed it down or they just were not in the same boat. And so I think that as well could have prompted the decision that others are doing things to make sure that they manage the risk or reduce the amount of risk coming to them. What should the, you know, the Fannie and Freddie, the GSEs be doing? So just that's another thought. Joe, what thoughts do you have on that? You can take, I look at this also in a different vein too. These guys have been bled dry over the last uh, decade or so by the treasury, I mean, their earnings and so forth. And they're they're both going to to try to jump to the, the public sector again. This could also be a way to be able to increase their cash position because there's going to be an awful lot of refinances, especially with as we start unwinding this forbearance stuff, and some of these folks are permitted then to refinance out of that. There's going to be a, an awful lot of opportunity for refinance activity to increase off the forbearance activity, and I think that, and I think there are people out there actually saying, "Hey, look, the GSEs are taking advantage of the market just to make money." I don't necessarily believe that's not true, but the fact of the matter is, yeah. that's going that that that's absolutely going to happen at 50 basis points with the amount of activity. They're going to the coffers will fill up relatively quickly. So you can take a look at it from that perspective. Gwen has a perspective of risk. I'm taking a, a perspective of greed. So I mean, there are two different <laughs> there are two different perspectives here, right? <laughs> Which I think the MBA would agree they're, that they're feeling as though they're kicking folks while the market is still down, the release. Absolutely. 
Les, any thoughts you've got on it? I actually viewed this through the PPP and thinking that Treasury says, all right, a number of mortgage companies out there did take down the payroll protection program. And then they now have this flood of refinances. Margins are at their widest level. At Treasury, we have a former mortgage banker. I think this was very much a move to say that the government wants to wet their beak. Hmm. So it's a 50 basis points tax on uh, refinances. And considering there's plenty of New Yorkers that are involved in these decision makers with the investment bankers, I think uh, 50 beeps is just fits with the New York approach to refinances. So I'm not uh, surprised about that. So I think it's a more political and tax move. The director of the FHFA has stumbled a few times. And let's face it, everybody tries to uh, recover. So, yeah. Sure. yeah, it'll be interesting. When you say he stumbles, Joe, I'm interested in getting some of your insights. Uh, he, we've seen him stumble, but some might see a stumble and some might see jumping on an opportunity. Both is forward movement, but one is uh, accidental. <laughs> one is intentional. When you look at this, I'd love to get your commentary on that. I always have a problem with an academian in a position that he's Calabria in. Is in. Yeah. Yep. I, I have a problem, and not because I don't respect the fact that they have an immense amount of education. They're smart people. Oh, yeah. but he is. This, this business is a different business, and I think that folks that come from that side of the world think that there's nothing to it. And it, it, it is. It's complex. It's complicated. Yep. Uh, you drop a pebble into that pond, it touches a lot of shoreline. The unintended consequences is always there that they ch- just don't get. And I think that, that uh, putting someone like that in a position, is it doesn't do them any good service and it doesn't do the industry good service. You need somebody that's been in a pick and shovel business, down in the trenches, gets it from the mm-hmm. ground up and can make uh, decisions that they understand what the impact's going to be when they make a decision. That's, that's what good. I mean. Yeah, Gwen, you talked about, you talked, you commented, your first comments were based on your Fannie Mae hat. So taking off the Fannie Mae hat and looking at this from an industry standpoint, do you want to add anything more to uh, what you've already said? I think the, what I would add is I am surprised at the timing of this and yes. also surprised at the lack of vetting because the, I think the GSEs have been very careful in just at least taking a temperature check as they have released new guidelines. And this this seems to have blindsided a lot of people. And, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means the point about uh, the maybe they want to share the wealth of the industry because they, clearly in the, the industry players are, are uh, enjoying margins like they haven't seen before and, and are very pleased with profitability numbers. So that's good. And then with, again, my point earlier about the fact that other players that have, have chosen to step out of certain segments of the market. And so I just understand, but I'm surprised at this time with all of the other things going on in the industry that a decision like this would happen with, with again, maybe there was vetting, but there just doesn't seem to have been. Doesn't seem like it. The level of vetting that typically has happened for anything that could potentially be controversial. Well, isn't it interesting? There's been a premium being paid in the marketplace for refinances anyway. Uh, Particularly Wells Fargo has led that effort to have higher price, or it's more expensive for consumers to refinance with Wells Fargo than almost any other lender out there. 
We're also watching, Gary, your old firm, Texas Capital Bank, also react and how they wed the timing of funding refinances. And so there's been, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And your, that perspective, they seem to be supporting, and I can understand why they would, supporting the core of our business, which is the purchase business. And the refinances oftentimes treat as refrosting, but your commentary on the, the warehouse lenders would be persp- interesting perspective for me. The, from a warehouse standpoint, they really don't care whether it's a refinance or a purchase. They're just looking, is the loan on the books and is it from a good, solid lender and is it a good, solid loan? However, that said, part of the issue because of the volume levels, and it's all warehouse lenders now and banks have capital issues or potential capital issues at the end of a quarter. And so they've got to make sure with some of the defaults that are occurring in energy loans and in commercial loans and real estate loans, all of those defaults take take capital, and there's not a there's a finite amount of capital available for all these institutions. So if it's capital is going to cover a default in one area, the another area has to reduce their lending somewhat to be able to to make sure the capital gets spread around okay. And that I think is probably a lot of the reason why a lot of the warehouse banks are at the end of a quarter dialing back the volumes a little bit. Uh, which makes it very difficult for the independent mortgage banker who depends on that at the end of the quarter to suddenly be told five percent or ten percent or twenty percent less on your facility. It's a real challenge for them. That's so true, Gary. I'd love to get your thoughts on the warehouse lending right now. I know you're usually the one asking the questions, but you are the the head of the this advisory group. But your perspective on warehouse lenders, I'm getting a lot of phone calls from independent mortgage bankers concerned about how the order in which they can fund loans, the, the the prioritizing. There's concern because of Texas Capital Bank because of uh, some of the things that they're having to they're they've gone through. That in fact is this. Going going to trickle out to other lenders or other warehouse lenders specifically. One particular one is exiting and another one's cutting back further. So love your perspective. What should independent mortgage bankers that are listening to this or watching this now, because we're doing a Zoom meeting for our first time, are thinking about what should they, what should independent bankers view this as? Is this just something that's isolated incident or is this something of a long-term concern or a new trend? I think as long as the pandemic is where it's at now and surging continually, I think there's a fear. Joe made a comment that I think is spot on in that if you've got somebody that's going to control a portion of this industry, they need to have been down in the ditches and down in the trenches before. You find a lot of independent or, or bankers that haven't been in the trenches. I was told years and years ago by one banker that what was a big deal about mortgage banking is just shuffling a bunch of papers. That kind of tends to be a little bit the attitude of bankers. And so they don't understand exactly what's going on. They read the news about forbearance increases and potential defaults. And so they get nervous. And so they start dialing things back. And then they see other areas of the bank, as I said, such as energy lending, real estate, commercial lending beginning to falter a little bit. And they just get nervous because there's a finite amount of capital. I think you will probably see that trend throughout the rest of this year and possibly into next year. If I'm an independent mortgage banker, the one thing you can do to mitigate a lot of that is stay in contact with your warehouse lender. Don't yeah. ever let a warehouse lender get caught by surprise. If you got a problem coming, be the first one to pick the phone up and let them know and explain it to them and what your plan is. When you don't communicate with a warehouse bank, they get nervous very quickly 
and they will bail on you on a heartbeat if they figure they can't trust you. I always like something Lynn Merkel, who I got my first warehouse line with over 30 years ago at first collateral. He said, Dave, if you have a serious issue, the first call probably should be to your wife to let her know there could be some disruption. And the second one is to your warehouse lender. So that he, so I, he says the only reason you bring up the first one is to tell you how important the second one is. And I think there's some real good, there's a good moral to that story. It's just of all the relationships that an independent mortgage banker can have, the warehouse lender has probably got to be the most important. It is. You, and again, I'm going to say something that it's going to sound a little flippant. I don't mean it that way. But you can always find somebody to sell that loan to. There is mm-hmm. somebody somewhere that will buy that loan. Yep. It's not altogether true when you look at is there always somebody there who will warehouse that one for me. If you go back to 2008, there were five warehouse lending banks in the United yep. States for a period of time. So those are not always available. We're not going to get back to that point, I don't believe. But you could see the availability of warehouse funds constrict a little bit in the next six to 12 months. Joe, along those lines we were talking earlier, I read yesterday or the day before, Jenny May's volume had exploded to over $70 billion last month, and it's projected to stay there or higher. I know there has been a concern in Jenny May that you vocalized very eloquently about independent mortgage bankers and the growth in Jenny May. Can you address your thoughts on that? Look, back in uh, when I was in office in 08 and 09, we went from, as I probably said before, six to eight billion a month, and we ballooned up to 75 billion. That was new growth. That was new FHA and DA new growth because Fannie and Freddie had been in, went into conservatorship. There was not a lot of that going on. So that was all new growth and so forth, uh, which had its elements of risk associated with it because we had a lot of good people jumping into the VA and FHA business that really weren't, didn't have the expertise. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it worked itself out. Today, I think what you're seeing is $70 billion worth of churn. You've got the prepayment speeds are so high right now. You, and we know who all the major culprits are. And all they're doing is taking it from one bond issuance and moving into another bond issuance. So all Ginny is doing right now is I don't think we're going to see their $2 trillion portfolio grow exponentially. I think all, all it's going to be is an in and out balance sheet issue for them. The problem they have, again, is the fact that the market's going to, the market suffers a little bit because investors don't like to be prepaid. So then what happens then is they, they, their thoughts on buying a new issuance, the willingness to increase pricing goes, either stays the same or goes down. It's just a lot of work for Ginny May to get out there and pay attention to. And they look around and there's not a whole hell of a lot they can do about what folks are doing to rape and pillage, excuse my language, but that's what they're doing, these bond issuance just for refinances. And so I think that right now we're not going to see an increase. I just think it's just they're just churning the portfolios and that's what you're saying right now. Joe, I've got a question for you. As you look at what you know, Calabria has done with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, putting in now a uh, tax, I like that word, on refinances. Jenny Mae is different in that they can't really set per se. And I'm not sure that everyone listening to this call understands that. And if you could explain the difference and why we have two GSEs uh, operating and why we, can, we will not most likely see that from Jenny Mae. Fannie and Freddie issue their own bonds, and Ginny doesn't issue the bonds. They just guarantee the bonds. So, and plus, Ginny Ginny doesn't have any control over the VA or FHA or the AG programs. To have an increase, you'd have to have an increase from those, 
And any increase from those entities has to go through Congress. So the, the chances are slim and none that would happen with the programs with the gubbies. But obviously, Fannie and Freddie are a little bit different than the structure and so forth. So I think that's the major difference. Don't, don't worry. If Jenny thought that it could increase its, its six <laughs> basis points to 10 basis points, they'd be standing on the hillside raising that flag all day long. I can tell you that. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Les, do you have any thoughts on this on the volume and what's going on with it? I have many thoughts, but I will limit it to uh, what we're talking right now on and with Jenny May. The stack right now, if you look at the coupons, we have a two coupon, a two and a half coupon, and a three coupon. Most originations have been going into the two coupon. There is no coupon underneath that for all practical purposes. And the differences in the prices between those coupons is very little. And so investors really are in a difficult spot. They're, they're making it very clear they don't want really premium loans. They've made it clear that they want as close to the market rates to be where their coupon rate is. That's clear. And yet here we are stuck right on top of all of the stack. And anytime you have movement go on like a 50 basis points price increase by the GSEs, that's going to influence uh, how the actual mortgage companies are making their money. It's a uh, we were in a dilemma, and I also believe investors are reluctant to invest in mortgages. It's really a domestic market. It's not an international market. Back in oh, when we had the crisis, when I was in office, I had, I had to get on a plane, and, and I was like a huckster in the Asian markets because we didn't have enough domestic support to go from under $10 billion a month to $70 billion a month. So we had to get it off the Asian markets. And they performed very well for us. Otherwise, we'd have had a, we would have been in deep trouble. But I think there is a reluctance, as Les said right now, for the Asian market to step up because there really isn't any. There's no juice in that deal for them. You know what I'm saying? There just isn't. And and they and they really get tired of the same old thing. They buy a bond, they pay a premium on the bond, and all of a sudden the bond goes away. Their investment goes away. Everybody understands that people want to better their lives and get a lower rate, but. The solicitation on these loans is just outrageous because of the technology has gotten so good that you can solicit and solicit. And you've got two or three different companies soliciting your loan and you're going and they're they're all they're making money. There's no question that the mortgage lenders are making money. But I've always come from the school of thought that you've, you've got to be able to su- support and strengthen your infrastructure, because when this goes away, there's going to be. Here again, we're going to get back down to my old problem. Mortgage bankers are either too busy or too sad. Too <laughs> sad, yeah. You know, and uh, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Dave Licken, um, Dave Licken, Les Parker. I have a question for Gwen. Uh, and welcome aboard, Gwen. Thank you very much for being on this call. Is that I was recently looking at statistics on mortgage originations by credit score, and we're back to the levels we were in 2003 in terms of the overall credit, but also the credit score percentage is overwhelmingly for high credit scores. And I was wondering what her thoughts are on how much, how large of the percentage now is at the, to the uh, 720 and even the 760 and above is now a significant portion. I would say it's 60% of all originations where uh, their FICOs are at those levels. Could she give us some commentary on how much, how the loans are being originated and the credit score uh, 
contribution. Sure, happy to. And so we've been seeing that trend for a while. And even during the days when, you know, I was I was at Fannie, as Fannie and Freddie, they're supposed to be providing access and providing stability to the market. And they're supposed to be providing a market for everybody in, across the credit spectrum. And there's been criticism for a while about the fact that these books are getting higher in credit scores, and which means what's happening to the either new entrants uh, to the credit market or the ones that are lower and weaker in credit scores. And, and very consistently, they've been boxing, being boxed out and being boxed out how um, certainly we've seen the credit overlays across the market. And so credit overlays by the primary market participants, by the banks, um, and Fannie and Freddie have their dials you know, to be able to control what comes in. And so I, I do think that's been a challenge. Now, certainly it's been done in the interest of preventing credit losses and defaults. And let's make sure that we have pristine credit and that we have sustainability so people can stay in their homes. But I do think that we are, we are, we as an industry will be criticized about whether we truly are providing access to credit across the spectrum. I also, I've done work quite a bit in, in my career around credit scores and whether or not our credit scores, the only way to evaluate somebody's ability to succeed at home ownership and at, at maintaining credit. And there's a big debate about that, of whether we should be hanging our hat completely on credit scores <laughs> or whether we should be looking for alternative sources of credit and alternative ways to evaluate people so that we don't inadvertently create barriers. So I think both things are happening. We, as an industry, we hang our hat on credit scores and we've been moving very firmly into the mid 700s across the industry, everybody. But I do think that we've got to pay attention and, and we will. And so when the bottom falls out of this refi market, we're going to be saying, how do we address emerging markets? How do we address first-time home buyers? How do we go into some of the underserved segments? And there we've got to, we still want to do good credit, but we've got to look for alternatives to evaluate people's ability to pay. So, so those are some of my thoughts. Um, just I have a quick follow-up question on that. Is that on uh, sustainability of credit? Milken Institute, Urban Institute has done some really good work on in that area. What's your thought on using uh, disposable income? Because that's rather than it focusing as much on credit scores, yeah. what do you think about using uh, disposable income instead of uh, debt DTI becoming the you know coupled to those credit scores? Oh, I'm a big proponent. And I my humble beginnings, not to go back so many years, but was actually in alternative lending, Alt-A, or even some call subprime. And the way to, at that time, you, you underwrote the loan and you'd have to collect the loan if you, if you underwrote a bad loan. And so it's really important to make a good decision on somebody's ability to afford the loan and somebody's willingness, right, to pay the loan. And so I do believe disposable income is something that we've got to pay attention to. And, and even as we've been having the QM argument, I, I think that just the, that kind of hanging our hat on DTI. Obviously, we've relaxed around DTI now from where we started years ago. But I do think that both disposable income and alternative sources of credit, just recognizing them are things that we are going to need to look at as an industry. What I've seen from my perspective, look, I'm old school. If you can't underwrite the 1003, get the hell out of the business. <laughs> that's, forget the credit score. you got to underwrite the 1003 because that's where you're going to understand why the credit score is the way it is, 
and whether or not there is the inability to repay. Yeah. And we've grown up in the same environment where we had to underwrite or we had to collect. You know, when the first thing you do is get a bucket that you have to collect delinquent loans, you figure out why, how not to do that job. So you learn that way. So yeah. I'm not a proponent. I, the credit score to me is just an indicator, nothing more. If you don't underwrite right. the 1003, let's just go from 2008 to the present time. What we've seen in the marketplace is an incredible amount of folks 50 plus years old who've had the ability, who have spent a lot of money and taken on an awful lot of credit to, for education, for weddings, for you name it. And their families are now, they're, they're up to here uh, with uh, 30, 40, $50,000 worth of credit card debt or some kind of debt. All of a sudden, depreciation from that point in time starts to move forward. They all of a sudden see a light at the end of the tunnel where they can take that thirty or forty thousand dollars, refinance it into a four or five percent loan or, or less. All of a sudden, they have even more disposable income. Now, guess what happens? Those people don't rush out to get in debt again. Those people are now living the life because they're not living from check to check, which may be a guaranteed income from pensions or Social Security, whatever the hell it is. So we're seeing those people who had a six twenty FICO score. All of a sudden, now over a period of time, their FICO score goes to 700 plus because they're not taking on any more debt. They're taking that disposable income. And let's face facts. If you get to the end of the month and you don't have enough money to take your wife to dinner, who, who aren't you going to pay? Because you're going to take your wife to dinner or you're going to do something, right? So disposable income is key. So I think what's happened is we've had a lot of folks 50 plus years old who have gone down the road of debt because it had to, all of a sudden got refied out of that, who aren't getting back in debt. And now all of a sudden, four, five, six, seven years later, they're back in the market again saying, hey, now I can go from a 4% rate to a 3% rate, I'm gone. There's a reason why we're seeing more and more, I think, more and more higher credit uh, uh, credit scores, because we're seeing that group of people now who aren't getting in debt being able to refinance again. Good point. You know, I think... And that's not my area especially, but I've seen a lot of this activity go on. You know it's a I'm good saying? observation. It's, 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 it's just a different perspective. I think it's a very good observation when you look at it, especially when what Les's comment was talking about where the credit scores were, that we're seeing the, the credit scores by and large improve. I think this came out when you look at uh, Quicken's. I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on the IPO of Quicken. I think, is this a new trend? Are we going to see this start happening on an ongoing basis? Are we see more and more companies access the IPO markets to for capital? I was, quite frankly, encouraged or surprised by the FICO score that was mentioned in their circular, and their offering circular, where, which was, I believe, a 767, as if I'm recalling the number accurately, if my memory serves it correctly. That speaks to your point. I'd love to get your, the, the, everyone's thoughts on, are IPOs now going to be the new way to access digital capital? And is this something, a new trend, or is this a, an isolated incident? I think it's going to be difficult for mortgage bankers to do that. What Quicken is trying to do with Rocket Mortgage is trying to sell themselves as a fintech, as a financial company, or excuse me, a technical company that happens to be very good at financial stuff. I just don't see, uh, I just don't see public money going into mortgage companies. It's just too volatile and there's no steady, constant stream. Go ahead, Joe. You agree? I, I can, I, but the question I ask is why? Why do you want to put yourself through this? I've been on a public board, a, a public REIT 
for now since 2013 when it started. We have hit earnings. We have paid significant dividends quarter after quarter. And yet the investment market still doesn't support it because it's a, it has to deal with mortgages. Whether yep. you're a reader or a mortgage company, they just don't like the volatility. My question to these folks that, that want to be in the public market and do an IPO is, why do you want to put yourself through that? Because now they, got to, they can peel back the onion. They can look deep into your organization. It's going to cost you a fortune to be a public company. And then you really don't have any guarantee that the capital markets are going to be there for you. That's I mean, a great point. Joe, you're spot on. One of the issues that banks have that have warehouse facilities or mortgage lending facilities, when they look at the earnings, that they can hit the numbers quarter after quarter, year after year, and they still get very little credit from investors for that mortgage-related income, whether it be warehouse or origination or servicing. They get very little credit for that because of the volatility of it that's perceived in the marketplace. Or if you have financing real estate or commercial real estate or energy loans or automobile loans or something like that, they can they feel much more comfortable and they give a multiple much higher of those type of loans than they do on mortgage-related facilities. Sure. If you can get one or two times on your mortgage-related facilities in a bank, you're doing pretty good. Just to, to go back to your original question, David, I, I agree actually with both lesson and Joe that the I don't this is not I think a trend at all that's going to continue and I think that there's not a no there's no incentive <laughs> for mortgage bankers to go down this path but the why that I think of that Quicken and Rocket Rocket Mortgage would do this is I think that Quicken has always been on the path to build this brand and I think that their goal with the IPO and and I think their aspiration was that this brand is now so recognized that it's going to be something that the market will pay for. So I think they're unique because I don't think there are many that kind of approached it that way. And and I think they they too have hoped that the brand would transcend the normal muck of a mortgage industry to be viewed more as this efficient technology thing. So I um, think they're very unique. And even as you all know, as, as they approach the IPO, things dialed down lower than they expected in terms of their price points. So it's very unique. Don't expect that to, to happen other places. Yeah, and I'd remind everybody, just go back and look at what what happened to some other celebrated uh, IPOs. I'm thinking of Countrywide and the pressure that puts them on a quarterly basis and how that can change your whole focus. When you get analysts calling, calling you, Gary, you lived through this at Texas Capital Bank. The whole focus goes to a quarter, to quarter, to quarter, and how analysts view you can really start skewing how you run your business. I would right. discourage, <laughs> discourage people from going down that path or considering it, or if you do, be sure to get a hold of the Angel Advisor Group here, and hopefully we'll be successful in looking at <laughs> to your points, uh, Gary and Joe. Hopefully we'll get them to think and at least think it through carefully. So, all right, it's a temptation, but it's one that I think most should resist. One uh, one last thing I'd like to to get everybody's thoughts on is I also read this week that CoreLogic is predicting that 2021 defaults will set records as as we work through the pandemic and as this assistance begins to slow down or disappear. And uh, I think they're right. As, as Mark Helm had mentioned in one of our other meetings, that the defaults won't start until 2021 when the 12-month period for the forbearance is up and you go back to that person, suddenly they have to start making those payments. I just think that is. is what are anyone's thoughts on what the future is in the next 12 months for delinquencies and defaults? 
I'm looking at a chart right now on national overview of loan performance. The numbers for 60-day to 90 days is at 2.8, which is the highest past due since 1999. So it's interesting that that's, I thought it had been higher than that during the financial crisis. But regardless, the current 30-day delinquencies are at or no, they're not technically delinquent. 30 days plus are at 7.3 Wow! right now. 7.3. So there's a huge pipeline getting ready to hit. So I do think that there's a reason why someone's doing it. Look, I, for me on delinquency, delinquency is heavily tied to unemployment rate. We don't really know how unemployment's going to settle down over these next few months. And basically, there's two views that are developing on that. We have one of near-term and we have a long-term view. The near-term view is that deflation pressures around the globe and recessionary pressure pressures around the globe. In fact, Great Britain or the UK just published its worst single GDP drop in its history or modern history. And that's down, I believe it was 22% GDP. So we have we have an unstable market right now, and there's deflationary pressures. So you have those things can add into being having high delinquency because it can be high unemployment in that environment. However, there's another view that's that is clearly developing in the marketplace. If you look at TIPS, which is the interest rate adjustment treasuries. They are trading at very record high levels, and that tells you that we have negative interest rates going on. So investors are saying, uh, real returns, investors are saying inflation is headed this way, and there's the outlook in the marketplace, in, in if you look at forward pricing of items, that the markets in various forms, whether it's in gold, whether it's in industrial metals, we're seeing forward contracts suggesting there is inflation coming in the next year or two. And, if, and that will accelerate if COVID-19 is addressed uh, near term, which it does appear there's some therapeutics that are going to be announced here shortly that the U.S. is working on that hasn't hit the press yet in the U.S. It has hit the press in Southeast Asia and different publications. If these things continue to develop as the marketplace thinks they're developing, and if there's any acceleration in that, then these the threat of this high delinquency is going to dissipate pretty quickly. If that doesn't happen, then I do think we have a huge increase in delinquency ahead of us. I think that it's that we have an increase ahead of us, period, no matter what happens with the trials. Everything that has been done by the federal government and the, the steps that have been taken, quite frankly, I think that this refi boom is propping us up. But what that means is that we're, everything is it's pushed down the line, and so there's just a delay in what's going to happen. And so for everything that we've got, the forbearances, well, guess what? And it was encouraging to see that in some cases, people filed for forbearance, but they still paid their mortgage. Great. But as our economy is stressed and people truly are without pay because they have no jobs or underpaid, 
they're trying to, and I believe in good faith, people are trying to keep up and do what they have to do. But the longer that we're in this challenging environment with the pandemic and the economy is limping along, we're just pushing it down the cycle. And so I do think that at some point we've got to catch up and when people are going to have to figure out what's going to be the loan modification solution for the forbearance that I took. And and, and it doesn't mean the, the payments don't get made. It means you've got to restructure the loan to figure out how to pay that. So at some point, loan payments need to resume. At some point, we are now facing this period where people are not getting the assistance they were getting with the unemployment. That's getting going to be hitting us as we get into third and fourth quarter. And then the scenario with the refinances where some people, it's great that we've been able to have a good refinance market, but there actually has been a, quite a bit of churning in the market where people have been refinanced multiple times. And they're using the equity. So I do think that, unfortunately, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to hit a wall um, where all of these things, even the PPP, where people have been able to take advantage of the Paycheck Protection Program, you may have to repay those loans. And so it, it's just there's a lot that's been pushed down that is going to come to roost. And we're, we, the royal, we are going to have to begin paying and Hopefully, we'll be in a in a better position. But I, unfortunately, I think that we're going to end up being stressed, and and we're going to see higher delinquencies. A couple of quick stats on this: 100 million Americans rent housing right now. 100 million, and 28.9 to 39.9, based on an uh, Aspen Institute research paper, are at risk of eviction in 2020. Mm-hmm. That's why, as I said, I agree with Glenn. I think we've got a potential problem coming, significant problem in, in later this year and, and more likely into the first, second quarter of 2021. It's it's going to be a difficult time. Joe, your thoughts? I, it's The freight train's coming. And no doubt about that. And uh, it's just coming at us. We just don't know how big it is at this stage of the right. game or how long it's going to take to resolve itself. But, you know, I mean, moving. We need to. We just. We just need to hope and pray that uh, this pandemic thing uh, dissipates as quickly as it possibly can, so that this country can get back to some sense of normalcy. And I'm not even sure if that even is what the hell the definition of that is anymore. Right. Uh, but we need that. Uh, we need. And, and right now, we had an awful lot of consumer confidence going for ourselves, and that has yes. really dissipated. Uh, yeah in a very short period of time. Right now, a lot of people, are, all you had to do is watch what happened at the beginning of this COVID. Everybody was hunkering down, buying every roll of toilet paper, every bottle of water, <laughs> everything they possibly can. I've got an elderly gentleman up the street with you and up the street from me. When he opens up his garage door, it is filled with toilet paper. Wow. I don't know what the hell, I don't know what he, and now he's, he, I'm old, but he's older than me. I don't know what the hell he's thinking, but I think that's, I think that's the mentality of our people. They're just like, they're scared. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They're, 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 they're hunkered down. And the last thing on their mind is paying their debts. That's right. Survival is, survival is the first thing on their mind. And if they can survive, they'll figure out how to do the, the second piece, which is pay their debt. Because you know what? I don't think they care. They're just, they're just yeah. trying to survive. 
And, and I think to your point, Joe, that is really important. You, you, your famous thing we could quote you on is too happy or too sad. Uh, mortgage bankers are so happy that they have the volumes, the refinances, that no one's paying attention to what's on the other side of this thing. Okay. Less that the fact that you bring up the numbers that you do. Numbers don't lie. Those numbers are real. We look at the 30 bus and that is a freight train. That is the proverbial freight train you're talking about, Joe. I think it's really interesting. I, I think this is an election year. All the craziness, everything is going to show up. This is the craziest we've ever seen. And it seems somewhat, but it depends on where you land on this thing. There's how much of this is a result of that. What's going to be a result on the other side of this election, no matter which way it goes? It's very consequential. Not to say that every election has been consequential up to this point. So I think it is, it's going to be very interesting. I, so you asked my opinion, Gary. Yes, I believe that, that we have, from a delinquency standpoint, some very difficult days ahead. What, let me ask the question. What, obviously, we all believe, I think we all believe, that most of the mortgage banking community doesn't think about the what ifs. That's right. They're all in today. They're, they're into the moment. Yep. What percentage of the industry do you think is going to dissipate yeah. once, as this thing hooks back on us at some point in time? And it will hook back on us. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I've, I've got some predictions. I'm, I'm, I'm not thrilled about putting them out there, but I'm telling you, I think we're going to see a 30 or 40% loss of companies in this company. And I hate to say it, that may be conservative. That may be conservative. You look at past trends. I've been at this. We've all, most everyone have been on this. I've been 47 years. Several of you got me on that number. We've got, we've seen the trends and what happens and look at what happened in 08. I think we, that was a different circumstance. We have a but uh, the similar things are going to happen. I think uh, it's so much is going to be determined by this economy. That's why I love talking to Les and getting the numbers from him and where we're at. But uh, I am deeply concerned. I see the potential and I can show you numbers. I can literally build formulas to substantiate 30 to 40% of our industry could uh, literally evaporate. I mean, it's, it's an opportunistic time. It's like the last refinance wave that took place in 2003, 4, 5. We watched that and then we looked, looked at how many people disappeared out of the industry and the companies disappeared. So hate to say it, that's, that is a potential number. Yeah, I yeah, agree. The, um, the reviews that we were doing in 2018, if you remember it being, it was such a yeah. painful year. Um, tons of discussions on mergers and acquisitions. And as we had client discussions, we talked a lot about kind of how to make the changes you need to make to be sustainable. And the reality is that then we've got the kind of light, lifeline in 2019 and 2020, but many of those companies didn't make the changes that they need to make. And I don't think are focused enough on efficiencies and on truly <laughs> understanding the cost structure. And unfortunately, I, I do agree that there's going to be some quite a bit of fallout. And you nailed it. It's cost structure, not focusing on efficiencies and cost structure. That is, that's what's going to take them out. It's not that they are just going to fold up their tent. It's that their hot cost structure is so high because of those very things, uh, Gwen. So I think that's going to take them out. Absolutely. We haven't mentioned AI, blockchain, or <laughs> machine learning, or technology, but I will say, to me, that is why you're going to see massive numbers of mortgage companies dissipate, go away. Over the next few years, when there's a shift in the marketplace, they're not going to really be positioned capital-wise. In fact, that's why I believe the GSEs and others are lifting capital requirements. Uh, that's going to continue. I do think we're going to probably put in a permanent methodology for uh, addressing liquidity for any type of waves of, del of delinquency and foreclosures. But I do think it's technology that's actually going to be driving why yeah. these things are going to come down. The yeah. mortgage banking industry has been highly cyclical, and I believe we're on, on the next path is that it won't be. It will be 
mega company or large companies becoming mega companies, and we'll see some that no one has ever heard of become mega companies. I do think the play at Quicken, even though, and I know in their their perspective, they prospectus they put in a number of times they said technology, technology, technology. I believe it was a hundred and seventy six times if I read that times. number yep. That's right. <laughs> that they put in the paper. So if they actually pull that off, then there is a long term play with Quicken. There are others that are making this play and the GSEs, and I imagine Gwen have knows some things she can't share with us, but I am aware of some things happening at the GSEs. Uh, the, if you also look at, we have not mentioned on this call, the acquisition by ICE, yes, LMA. I was just going to go there. So we have Black Knight growing by acquiring OB. We have uh, ICE now growing with LMA. ICE is already positioned with Simplifile and with MERS. They are clearly positioning themselves to be for the digital mortgage and to be the person gathering data for stakeholders to be able to access data that will facilitate the future mortgage of the digital mortgage. So when you start looking at the the pandemic, the cyclical nature of our business, and then overlay it with technology and how technology is really going to manifest itself in our industry, I think it's going to manifest itself by individual lenders that are grabbing huge market share. I think 5% market share will be nothing in a few years. I think you will have players that have 10 to 15%, 20% market share. Excellent point. Yeah, the, the, the back to some of the conversations that I've had, it, it's, it's really challenging for the mortgage bankers when they were struggling in 2018. Of course, nobody wanted to think about making the investment in digital processes and AI and machine learning and what's on the back burner, except for those who were really forward thinking. And then through this, cri- this crunch, then it's we're too busy, except for those who are really forward thinking, which tend to be the bigger ones. And so I, I actually agree with with where you're headed there, because I think the ones that are building themselves to be sustainable have continued to make those changes and invest in the technology that's needed throughout this boom. And then they'll be prepared when, you know, the, the bottom falls out next next year or beyond. We're running out of time on it. I want to thank everyone. Is there anything else anybody would like to briefly or quickly discuss? If not, I wrap it up. I want to thank everyone for, for it. And I would encourage any of the lenders or folks that are listening to this to reach out to us and let us help you grow through these times because there are some challenging times coming ahead. And thank you, everyone. I want to tell you, that is a good interview, a good commentary, lots of nuggets in there. Go back and listen to that if you want to by going to the Ainsworth Advisors website, AinsworthAdvisors.com, and you can hear the full recording again. Thank you so much for letting me share with you your Labor Day holiday. Hope you have a great rest of the day and look forward to having you back here again next week. Have a blessed week, everybody. been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.